0: Over the past several weeks, we've been working through the uh, book by William Lane Craig, On Guard, and we've been dealing with questions like, what difference does it make if God exists? Why does anything exist? And why did the universe begin? We had uh, John's excellent um, sermon uh, two weeks ago explaining how our universe is specifically and finely tuned for life, and then last week we had Nate's sound handling of whether objective moral values can exist in the absence of God. And at this point, hopefully we have shown that, yes, we have good arguments that God exists, that there is a creator. And I hope we're all seeing that these arguments can be very useful to us. They're useful for us to become familiar with, as Nate reminded us last week, um, since they equip us in a number of ways. Uh, First of all, to winsomely persuade unbelievers, um, to fortify our, our faith, to teach our children, to raise our children up in such a way that they would know what to reasonably follow and to reasonably believe, and also to address our own doubts. And I think this last point in particular is important when we grapple with issues like today, issues like suffering and evil. Uh, I apologize in advance, I'm just getting over a a cold, so if I seem a little stuffy or coffee or whatever I may do, forgive me. Um, But up until this point, we have been presenting the arguments, we've been presenting them, and we've been defending our rationale um, for God's existence, which is natural, uh, since as Josh defined in the first week of our series, Christian apologetics is actually the discipline devoted to defending, to defending the truth of Christianity. And that's what we've been doing, we've been providing evidence and argument for why it's reasonable to believe in the existence of God. Uh, but every now and then, as my Krav Maga instructor used to say, the best defense can be a good offense. And as we, uh, as we encounter atheistic arguments, which there are uh, plenty, arguments against the Christian worldview, against, for example, God's existence, then there may come along an opportunity, a good opportunity, for us to examine their arguments uh, and to ask them for they're apologetic uh, for their evidence against God's existence. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes uh, they will present an argument in return that I think uh, should make us pause and reflect. And one such argument, I believe, has to do with the problem of evil, the so-called problem of evil. Now, Before going any further, I want to make sure, for those of you who have been reading along in in, uh, Craig's book, On Guard, I want to make sure that uh, we're clear on our terms. So the book we've been working through, On Guard, it calls the argument today the problem of suffering. But I think, as Craig himself seems to recognize in later work of his, that suffering isn't quite inclusive enough of a term for this, for this topic. Um, rather, we need something a bit more overarching that not only includes suffering but also makes room for man and his moral or immoral decisions. So in this case, I think the better term for our discussion today would be uh, evil. We find a good definition for it in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary where they explain evil as the fact of suffering, misfortune, and wrongdoing. So again, it's just a more inclusive term that better fits the problem being presented to us. So we'll be referring to our topic today and next week uh, as the problem of evil. And I don't think, I don't believe that there is anyone in here who would try to argue that evil does not exist in the world. Um, That there isn't suffering and misfortune and wrongdoing. I'm pretty sure everyone of us in here has either experienced or witnessed it in one way or another. Um, As D.A. Carson puts it, um, if you haven't already, you will. All we have to do is live long enough and we will experience suffering. Now, whether this evil stems from man's immoral actions or... Uh, whether it comes from natural causes or some combination of the two, uh, it's real, it's present, and it affects all of us. And it might seem, at first look, legitimately difficult to reconcile with the presence and the reality of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, perfectly good God. So we have to, we have to grapple with that. How can these two realities be true at the same time. And this this line of questioning, in a nutshell, is how the problem of evil typically arises. Now, before we really dig into this, we need to make a couple of distinctions. Uh, First of all, between what Craig calls the intellectual problem of evil and the emotional one. And it's important that whenever we're dealing with this topic, whether it's uh, in a teaching format, like we are this, this morning, or whether we are interacting on a case-by-case p- basis with individuals, it's important that we discern which one of these problems are we dealing with, because one is not addressed the same as the other. Uh, While well, the intellectual problem of evil, as we'll see later this morning, is focused uh, primarily on whether God and evil can logically coexist, the Emotional problem usually deals with evil on an intensely personal level Um, that's not limited to the atheist or to the skeptic but also must be dealt with at times for the Christian when we have to try and align what we are seeing, what we are experiencing with what we understand about who God is. And at times that can be incredibly difficult it can be a process and a struggle that prompts some very hard questions questions uh, that the uh, that the psalmists asked that the prophets asked that job asked that we ourselves may have asked why does it seem like evil is winning oh god why have you allowed this to happen to me or to my loved ones? Where are you in this suffering, in this pain, in this moment? And I, I don't think these questions in and of themselves are necessarily wrong to ask, but what can happen is that they can give way to, to bitterness and resentment toward God. And therein lies the emotional problem, of evil, one that is most likely to strike, it's most likely to pop up when evil catches us off guard. When we've historically given the idea of evil, the concept of evil, the topic of evil very little attention. But then all of a sudden, we either experience or witness devastating catastrophe, and all of a sudden, evil is front and center in our lives and we're not ready for it. Maybe we didn't ignore it, but maybe we thought we were immune to it somehow. It's going to happen to them, it won't happen to me. Maybe we paid too much attention in Sunday school to the victories of David and Joseph and and Christ's triumph. And we didn't pay enough attention to Joseph's imprisonment and sorrow and David's anguish and lament and the sufferings of Jeremiah and the, the frequent illnesses of Timothy, whatever they were, and the thorn in, in Paul's flesh, and Naboth, righteous man, getting killed for his vineyard, or Uriah being killed for his wife. Um maybe we didn't sufficiently meditate on the immense suffering that christ bore on our behalf and and what it means to pick up our cross and to follow him and whatever the case if we are not prepared and all we have at our disposal is whatever flimsy rationale we've sort of picked up along the way or created for ourselves and if all we have is are these you know, base Christian platitudes that we grew up with as we prayed evil away from ourselves and our families, then when we suddenly face it, the emotional problem is just going to spike right up. It's going to be right there. And we can fall quickly into the pagan tendencies of short-sightedness and, and despair, even questioning the most basic tenets of what we believe. And that's not something to be considered lightly. Uh, Nor is the emotional problem of evil clearly something to be ignored. And since we know uh, that it's only a matter of time before we experience evil firsthand, if we haven't already, it's not a bad idea to uh, now start taking the time to prepare for it. And if you ask me, Josh, well, well, how do we do that? Well, I can think of a few things right out the gate. Uh, First, um, be in daily study of God's Word. Seems obvious, but we need that reminder. The Bible is not a passive tool to be used now and then and put on the back shelf uh, to collect dust. Use it daily. Pick it up actively. Apply it. Reflect on the truths that you read about God, and about evil, and about God's response to evil. Familiarize yourself with those things, and then ground yourself in them. Plant your feet on a firm theology that is bred from study, reflection, and application. Work to understand the implications of what you believe, and then, very importantly, resolve yourself. To hold to those truths about who God is and about what His promises are, no matter what comes, no matter how you feel in the moment, you have to commit to resisting what Carson calls the <clears throat> the crush of the urgent, which is basically the belief that if God is going to show up, if He is going to do something to relieve our suffering, and to solve evil, then it needs to be in the immediate. It needs to be right now, our timetable. And if not, then God's promises are null and void, and he must not be who he says he is. We've got to resist that mindset. We have to commit to to not looking at our circumstances and at evil uh, in the world through a temporal lens, if you will, but to look at it through God's eternal perspective and trust in His promises and purposes. And we'll talk about that some more next week, actually. But lastly for today, and I think this is also very important, you need to make effort, real effort, to uh, put aside anything in your life that would hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, You need to allow him the space to create in you a bedrock, a foundation of stability and godliness and courage and humility and joy and holiness and faithfulness. It's a long list. But those are the things the Holy Spirit will do in your life, and those are the things that will sustain and bolster you more than anything else when evil comes your way. Now, what I'm saying is that, is that dealing with the emotional problem of evil is best done not just on a Sunday morning where it comes to our attention, but it is best done over a lengthy and a steady preparation process. It's something that needs to be done preemptively in expectation of evil. But not everyone thinks to do that or is able to do that. And so when someone is grappling in, a, in, a, in the moment with this problem of evil in a personal and in a painful way, whether it's a lost loved one, um, whether it's a cancer diagnosis, or just a hurting response to the evil in the world, whatever it is, their emotional dislike for God in that moment, uh, or their confusion and hurt that stems from what they're experiencing, those things probably won't be helped by having you sit them down and tell them the good news is none of it logically disproves God's existence, okay? God forbid, it wouldn't be helpful to tell them how they should have prepared better for suffering, right? Instead, I mean, rarely I think those will be helpful or healing things to say. Instead, for such people in such times, um, grieving with them, sitting with them, speaking less much less and listening more may be the better path you know be like job's friends before they opened their mouths before they began to speak present and quiet with job sitting with him in his grief and in his pain in silence for 7 days and 7 nights can you imagine now, I'd love to spend seven days on this emotional problem of evil alone, but we are going to save that for another sermon at another time. Uh, in the meanwhile, if you're keen to read more about this topic, I would recommend picking up some of these just sort of as beginner books uh, that are helpful, and, um, uh, and just give them a read. The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. I know many of you in here have already read that. Uh, the book that he wrote after his wife uh, passed away, A Grief observed, and also potentially thought-provoking and maybe less known uh, here would be D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord, a reflection on suffering and evil. But for the rest of today and next week, and more in line with our current apologetics series, uh, we're going to be focusing primarily on the intellectual problem of evil as it is presented by the atheist and the skeptic. And typically, the general overall problem as they present it is, uh, sounds something like this. If God is truly present, if he is all-powerful and, and benevolent, if he is marked by his loving goodness and he is disposed to doing good out of love, then how is it he has not just allowed evil to continue, but how is it that evil even exists in the first place. They believe that there is a logical disconnect of some kind between what we are told about the God of the Bible and what we see play out in the world. A Scottish uh, Enlightenment philosopher, David Hume, I think put it well for us. He writes, if God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is impotent. He Is not all powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He must want to inflict pain and evil on us. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? If God is, the Bible says he is, then how and why is evil even a thing? Uh, Hume continues, Why is there any misery at all in the world? Not by chance, surely. From some cause, then. Is it from the intention of the deity? But he is perfectly benevolent. He's all loving and good, isn't he? Is it contrary to his intention? But he is almighty. Nothing can shake the solidity of this reasoning, so short, so clear, so decisive. Um, So this is the heart of the, the argument, essentially. Because evil undeniably exists in the world, again, none of us are arguing with that here, God, at least as he is biblically defined, must not Um, Does God want to stop evil, but he can't? Then he's not the all-powerful God of the Bible, then. He must have limitations. Is God powerful enough to stop evil, but doesn't want to? Then he must not be loving. He must be some sort of monster, allowing us to experience um, all this pain and suffering. Um, Maybe he even wants it to happen. Is God both powerful and loving enough to stop evil? Then why is it still here? Why are we dealing with with this pain, suffering, and wickedness? Uh, Why did six million Jews die in the Holocaust? Why are Iranian women being persecuted and abused full scale? Why are thousands dying in this war in Ukraine? Why are parents in this church having to bury their children? Why are spouses dying Way too young. Why are cancers and diseases and various ailments afflicting our community? God, are you not powerful enough and loving enough to stop all of this, to prevent it? Where are you? And the answer to the atheists, again, is short, clear, and decisive. God's just not there. An omnipotent, omnibenevolent, morally perfect being who created and governs the world must not exist. Now, unfortunately to many, at a gut level, this might feel like a compelling argument. But our goal today is actually fairly simple. It is just to show that it doesn't work. All right, our goal uh, is to show that it can't be proven, that this argument in no way actually challenges the rationality of belief in God. And not just that, but maybe at the end of this, these two weeks uh, together, we might be able to conclude that belief in God um, and in the reality of his existence may at the end of it all be the only real solution that we have to the problem of evil. That In the absence of God, uh, the the moral uh, lawgiver, as Nate pointed out last week, we would have no objective standard by which to even define evil, let alone uh, deal with the so-called problem of it. So we're going to spend some time uh, looking at those those things, but uh, to do so in an effective way, we're going to split up our discussion uh, between this week and next week, and we're going to look at two different Versions of this intellectual problem of evil. Uh, this week we'll be looking at the logical version. and next week uh, we'll be tackling the probabilistic version. or, as Craig calls it in on guard, for those of you following along, he calls it the evidential version. And the logical problem uh, of evil is is actually pretty straightforward. It's presented in two statements. Uh, statement one, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God exists. Statement two: evil exists. Now, the atheist will look at those two statements, and they will claim that they are logically incompatible; that they are contradictory statements, in that only one can be true at the same time. Since it's undeniable, this statement two is true: that evil exists. Again, nobody's arguing with that. Statement one must be false, therefore God does not exist. And this is the basic formulation of the classic age-old problem that, according to Hume, stems all the way back to the days of Greek philosopher Epicurus and has not been resolved to this day. But if we look at the problem as it's presented, uh, what is the first question that we should ask? Not rhetorical. Sure. Where's the missing premise? Okay. Why are statements one and two contradictory? Uh, Why can't an all-powerful, all-loving God exist in the same reality that evil does? What about that at its face is logically inconsistent? And the answer is it's not. As uh, philosopher Alvin Plantinga points out, statements one and two at face value can, in fact, be logically consistent. There is no explicit contradiction between them. For the sake of clarity, let's consider for a minute uh, what an actual uh, explicit contradiction would be. Okay, we have two statements. Statement A, Tim St. Peter's is capable bench-pressing 275 pounds for one repetition. Okay. Statement B, Tim St. Peters is not capable of bench-pressing 275 pounds for one repetition. Now, I won't say which one of those statements is true, (laughs) but it's obvious that these two statements are explicitly contradictory and that they both cannot be true at the same time. Statements 1 and 2 of the original problem, however, carry no such explicit contradiction. Okay? Both, as they stand, can be true at the same time. So, if as part of their argument the atheist thinks that statements 1 and 2 are somehow contradictory, then they must be assuming something. Something not immediately obvious about one or both of those statements that would cause them to Conflict. There must be some implicit contradiction, some additional, necessarily true uh, proposition being added to the mix, maybe behind the scenes, that would make the atheist look at these statements and say, "No, it doesn't work." And sure enough, their argument boils down to um, two necessary assumptions that they need to sort of squeeze in here. Um, there's assumption. A, we'll call it, if God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. And assumption B, if God is all-good, all-loving, then he prefers a world without evil over a world with evil. Okay? So, if we add those two assumptions to the original problem, it looks a little different now. All right. If God is all-loving and all-powerful. He both can and wants to create a world without evil. Therefore, if God exists, his world would have no evil in it. But because statement two is still true, evil exists. Statement one must be untrue. God must not exist. So as you can see, right out the gate, the success of this argument hinges on whether those two assumptions are necessarily true. If they aren't, then the argument doesn't work. So, let's take a look at the first assumption. An all-powerful God can create any world he wants to. Now, notice they're not saying anything about what kind of creatures would be in this world. Um, But assuming they're not in support of God making a world of hand puppets or mindlessly subservient robots, and assuming they're talking about him making a world like the one that we have now, where God's creatures still have free will, but um, the world would also be free of evil. In order for that scenario, this is what would have to happen. God would need to create free creatures who always chose to do the right thing. You would need to create people who freely choose what God wants them to do. In other words, always make morally right choices. To them, this would be the reasonable explanation, the reasonable approach for God to take. But Plantinga argues that if it's even remotely possible that God's creation is actually, truly free, then... If man was created with genuine freedom of will, then God, even God, in his omnipotence, couldn't necessarily create just any world he wanted to. If God wanted man to be free to choose, then God has to create a world in which man is legitimately free to choose, uh, in which man is free of any causal determination outside of his own. So God, you know, he he can't do, we've talked about this before, logical impossibilities, like creating a round square, and uh, he cannot make someone freely do something. You all following me so far? So if he created a world that caused all of his creation to make a specific type of choice, the preferred type of choice, if he was to force his creation somehow to make the choice he wanted them to make, then that choice, by definition, is no longer free. So God, in a sense, is bound by his own parameters. He can only create circumstances in which a person is able to choose and then allow the person, within those circumstances, to choose. And if that choice is the opposite of what God wants for his creation, then that's what happens. So, if you follow this line uh, of thinking to its logical conclusion, then as long as God uh, has determined that He wants His creatures to have free will, and those creatures have genuine freedom to choose between what He wants them to do and the opposite, um, then it's the creatures themselves, effectively, who in their choices bring about the reality of evil. And God, outside of refusing to create worlds with free creatures, can't (coughs) necessarily prevent them from doing so. Thus, as Craig points out, it is possible that every world feasible for God which contains free creatures is a world with evil in it. And what this means in the end for our purposes today is that the atheist's assumption, Assumption A, that an omnipotent God can create any world he wants to just isn't necessarily true. Which, remember... It has to be necessarily true in order for this argument to work. Which brings us to the second assumption. If God is all good and all loving, then he prefers a world without evil over a world with evil. In other words, if he had a choice between creating a flawless world and a world uh, with evil in it, he would, of course, choose the flawless world. But is that necessarily true? It's not. Simply in that we can't rule out the possibility that God in his wisdom and omniscience has good explanations for allowing evil to exist, that he may have, as Craig puts it, morally sufficient reasons for permitting pain and suffering in the world. And as such, we're really not going to be in a place to Uh, to claim that this assumption, Assumption B, is necessarily true either. And we're going to explore this in greater depth next week. But for now, uh, if Assumption A can't be proven necessarily true, and Assumption B can't be proven necessarily true, then the logical problem of evil loses two key ingredients needed for its success, and without those two ingredients uh, proven necessarily true, statements one and two in and of themselves cannot be proven contradictory. Which means that this particular argument, this logical problem of evil, is unable in the end to prove that God does not exist. As Craig points out, if it's even remotely possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, it follows that God and evil are, in fact, logically consistent. Now, um, like I said last week, we're going to be, or, next week, we're going to explore this a bit more, and we're also going to work through the probabilistic or evidential problem of evil, the argument that while the coexistence of God and evil uh, is logically possible, they'll cede that ground to us, Um, The probabilistic version says, "...but given the reality and the prevalence of not just moral evil, but also natural evil in the world, it seems highly improbable that God exists." I'm looking forward to uh, working through answering that with you, as well as spending a little bit more time on the question of natural evil and how that ties into all this. Um, but between now and then, I invite you uh, to be a part of answering this question with me, Uh, and if you have questions, if you have areas that you are feeling confused or uncertain um, with, or if you just have general feedback, I invite you to approach me after the service. I'll stay up front for a little while. Um, Reach out to me, send me an email, give me a phone call, and if possible, I would love to address those questions with you, go into greater detail on any of this with you, uh, but also might take something that you offer and plug it into uh, next week's uh, teaching sound good all right thank you all God bless you
1: thank you Josh it's a great topic to address I'm really glad that you're able to take two weeks on it because there's a, a fair bit to talk about uh, and of course, as you notice, he was not talking about the emotional problem of evil. Except, of course, you still have to spend some time on it to explain why it takes so long to go over it. Um, yeah, the it's probably the best example uh, in my experience of why apologetics is necessary. It's it's like it's like so many decisions we make. Like you make decisions about uh, dating. Uh, not in the moment, you know. When you're alone with a person in a car, that's a, that's a terrible time to be thinking about that for the first time. You, d- you don't do that kind of stuff. You you think ahead. You you learn. You ask hard questions. Um, and it's profound. It's just so interesting that um, when people go through hard times, it becomes real to them. But those things have been real all along. Um, it's just real to us, but it has nothing to do with reality as a whole. Do you get what I'm saying? People uh, die every day, uh, and then all of a sudden, when it affects us, we think differently about it. But all that does is point out uh, our lack of circumspection and just not thinking about it, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's kind of how we're wired. Sometimes we avoid hard questions. It's, it's a lot of work. It's emotionally taxing. And so we, we do avoid those things. Um, and th- this particular problem of evil has just so many casualties. Uh, Bart Ehrman was a, um, is a well-known theologian, but it, it was sort of the last pillar that, that took him down into um, not believing that, that God could exist because, uh, as Nate mentioned the other week, we have many pillars holding um, up our faith, and, and this is a big one. Uh, It isn't the only one, of course, but uh, it deserves uh, all our time and attention um, and ask hard questions so that when those things come along, we we can think uh, more objectively because it's, of course, it's very, very hard to do uh, when things get difficult. So thank you, Josh. Um, So please stand. I'm going to let you go with a reading from Revelation chapter 21. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, uh, and he will dwell with them, kind of like what Wendell was talking about, the home of righteousness. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. Or crying pain, for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy true so um, you're dismissed to enjoy each other and have a good day